Everybody, welcome to the Hockey News Podcast brought to you by BetMGM. It's Matt Larkin here, and we are live. Why are we live? Well, we decided to throw a little curveball today. We're doing a special edition of the podcast. It's the dog days of summer. It's a great time of year to take a bunch of listener questions and do an all-mailbag edition. I always think it's fun. And we're doing it solo because Ryan Kennedy, he forgot to tell us that he was on vacation. We were looking for him. We're like, dude, we're about to start the podcast. We couldn't find him. And we found out he's on vacation. So you just have me to answer your questions. I hope that's okay. I enjoy doing it. And uh, Stephen Ellis, producer, is with me lurking around. He has the questions. And Stephen, I'm good to go if you are. Let's get it started. All righty. Yeah, it's, it's, that was true. We actually did not know that Ryan was not going to be here today. If you, if you guys listen to Matt's podcast with the with Seth and Caleb Jones, thrown to, to Ryan being here today and obviously not. All right. First question comes from Ryan Haynes. He says, Tuka Rask, will he play in the NHL again? Looks like it won't be for the Bruins this year. Could the Oilers somehow get him if he's healthy and wants to play? Yeah, it's a really complicated question. It's a great question, Ryan. Uh, the moment that Linus Allmark signed, I'm pretty sure it happened while we were in the middle of a podcast, and it kind of broke my brain because I assumed, okay, you've got Jeremy Swayman. He showed he looked so good last year down the stretch. He's going to hold down the fort. Maybe Boston will bring in kind of a, a budget veteran backup. I thought it was going to be kind of like a James Reimer type to pair with Swayman. Then they sign Ulmer to that big contract, which I do think puts Tuka Rask's future legitimately in doubt. We know he's not coming back until the winter with his surgery. And we know if he wants to play, he's 34 years old. He still obviously has the physical capability. Even after the surgery, I still think he's going to bounce back strong. It's not like he's 40 years old. I think he can do it. It's just a question of, do the Bruins have a fit for him now? Because I don't think Swayman's going anywhere. And you have Ulmer, who's really being paid starters' money. Is there going to be a spot for Rask? The good news is, Jeremy Swayman, he can be sent down without clearing waivers. So you, you do have that possibility. I think it's going to come down to the Bruins maybe making a decision on the fly as to whether they need Tuga Rask. And if they're struggling, if Allmark hasn't provided the goaltending they need, maybe they find a way to bring Rask in midseason and he takes a small amount of money. There's already a culture in Boston of taking less money. So I don't think money's going to be an issue. The bigger question is if Rask isn't going to be a Boston Bruin, will he play again? He said multiple times publicly he only wants to be a Boston Bruin. He'll retire otherwise. He's very well established as a, a big-time family man. And we know, of course, when his daughter had an emergency, he left in the middle of the playoffs. You know, he puts family first, as so many of us do. So if you're looking at a scenario like Edmonton, where you're crossing a border during these COVID times especially, you know, obviously the borders are starting, starting to loosen up, but it's still not that easy to travel between countries. I can't picture Tukarask going that far away. Uh, from his family situation. So to me, if he's going to go anywhere other than Boston, uh, I, I don't know if the odds would be high, but I would look at a team like the Pittsburgh Penguins. It's not too far away, a contender. And, you know, for now on paper, they're betting on Tristan Jari, even though 
he had that big time playoff meltdown. So I would look at a team like that, maybe to sniff around to Rask if they're they're in contention around midseason or getting deeper into the fall and the reports on Rask's health are good. It's hard to say. Do I think he's gonna be in the NHL again? I'm gonna say yes because he's just he's too young to give up. And I think he's putting together a Hall of Fame career, especially if he can get another ring because the Stanley Cup he was part of, he wasn't a starter on that team, the 2011 team, right? And he's been to the final twice, but he wasn't a starter. So I think if he really wants to solidify that resume, I mean, he's going to be a Hall of Famer anyway. He's got a Vezina trophy, but I think it would look nice. And that's my long Tukarask answer. It's someone that I apparently feel strongly about. So there you have it, Ryan. Uh, another theory here. Let's, I think, let's say he doesn't sign an NHL contract. Do you think maybe he focuses the entire season or his entire recovery about playing at the Olympics? Mm, that's very interesting. Yeah, I, I do think um, I do think that people underestimate how much the Olympics mean to NHL players. And I've said this before. It's just a fun stat that I've quoted many times where I spoke to someone who was a high ranking uh, official at the NHL and just said, what's the percentage roughly um, of players that want to participate is it like you know 80 90 and the answer was 100 so the, the players really care about this stuff so that's an interesting theory because the timing could work out it would be a great and actually a great tune-up a great audition if rask is trying to show how healthy he is that would be a great way to sort of show the hip is is ready to go because it'll be right before the trade deadline so it could be a team saying oh we need another goalie he just played pretty good hockey could be an option you know, and then, then it could also happen that you see Saros goes the entire way and then we even need Rask and it doesn't even matter. So we'll see. Next question comes from Brandon Garlino. The Panthers are loaded up front, but couldn't still, or I guess, could still use some help on D, in my opinion. Would Chara be a good fit in Florida? All right, Brandon Galapno. I like to I like to answer his questions. He's a regular question asker because it lets me show off my my French accent. I have a, I had a French Canadian grandma, so it's good to still see if I can roll that R properly. So, okay, here's the thing, Brandon. I, I think Zdeno Char really would be a nice fit. I think the Florida Panthers are a legitimate Stanley Cup contender. We're sort of in prediction season right now. We're getting ready our, our Hockey News yearbook where we have our predicted standings. And I was the guy in the room really pushing hard for the Panthers to be first place in the Atlantic. I'm not going to reveal what our projected standings are. That's for people who buy that magazine for now. But um, I like the Panthers. I'm bullish on them. So to me, Zdeno Char, that's an extra piece to put you over the top. I like the fit hockey wise but cap wise i don't know if it makes sense because you know if you look at the the decor there i think it's already pretty strong you have aaron ekblad coming back you have mackenzie Weger and gustav forsling that really really flourished down the stretch as a shutdown pair you have brandon montour coming back you have radko gudas so char would have to displace i guess uh, marcus nudivara but nudivara is making 2.7 million so you have to sort of figure out what to do with him do you trade him first and if they cleared that cap hit off the books then i could see the fit but otherwise i don't think they actually have a fit for him at the moment all right the next question is back to the boston bruins hansa repich asked what will be the legacy of david Krejci? should his number be retired in boston where does he stand among czech players in the nhl thanks yeah great question hansa um to me I think the Czech legacy is going to stand the test of time more than the Bruins legacy. I do think that he does have a very strong track record with the Bruins. I think he's one of the more underrated players of his generation, really strong at both ends of the ice. And, you know, part of a championship team, one of the only players uh, that was still active from that championship team uh, that was still on the, the Bruins until this past season, no longer there. But uh, if you look at all time 
Bruins leaders, he's seventh on the franchise list in games and eighth in points. So that's very solid. But if you look at some of the retired numbers in Boston, you've got, you know, Eddie Shore, Bobby Orr, Phil Esposito, Dick Clapper, Cam Neely, John Busick, Ray Bork. And I don't think we can put David Krejci in that chair. He's not going to be a Hall of Famer. I do think we're going to see Patrice Bergeron's number retired. I think there's a good chance we'll see Brad Marchand's number retired and a good chance we'll see Tuka Rask's number retired because I think all of them are on Hall of Fame trajectories. Bergeron's already in. He's guaranteed to get in. And I do think David Pasternak, based on what he's done so far in his career, and he got into the league early. He was the youngest player in the league as rookie, David Pasternak was. So if I were to predict right now, is David Pasternak going to end up being a Hall of Famer? I'll say yes. So I think in 20 years, we could see his number retired as well. So I think all of those members of the Bruins Corps are ahead of Krejci on the retirement list. But if you're looking at Czech players, in my mind, I thought, okay, maybe he's maybe he's on roughly a top 10 Czech NHL, or I'll say, I'll qualify it with Czech players who played in the NHL. Um, and I thought, well, you know, is he top five or is he top 10? But I, I thought top 10, but I look, I look closer and the names that you'd put ahead of Krejci for sure, there aren't that many. You've got Yarmir Yager, you've got Patrick Elias, Milan Hayduk. I think Pasternak you could project to be ahead of Krejci, which I do. And of course, Dominic Hasek, the greatest goalie who ever lived, number one. Any chance I get to push that agenda, I will. Uh, but other than that, there's a tier of like, you know, Bobby Holly, Black, Black Cloud Prospel, and Martin Havlad, Roman Hammerlick, Thomas Kaverlick. I think that Krejci can absolutely hang with that group. So to me, he's on the fringe of the top five and no worse than top 10 in terms of Czech, Czech born players who maintain their Czech citizenship. And I believe uh, Stan Mikita, I believe, was born in Czechoslovakia. And if I'm not mistaken, if you're looking at his citizenship, he's considered Slovakian, so that's why I didn't mention him. But I apologize if I'm wrong there. We're live, but that's my understanding the last time I checked. Same with, of course, the Stasnys. So I'm going to say top five, almost, and definitely top ten for David Krejci. So f- number 46 was the number that he wore with the Boston Bruins, uh, the question of his number being retiring. My, my f- the number I always wore in hockey was number five, and then also number 46. Those are the two numbers I wore, so 46. Great number in hockey. Also, Jan Bulish is the best Czech Republic player of all time. Don't even get me started. All right. Rantanen and Raven asks, if the Oilers don't come close to the Cup in the next five years, do both McDavid and Dreisaitl walk? If you have two more playoff failures, do you try to trade Dreisaitl? Of course. We have to have a question from Rantanen and Raven in the all-question edition because he or she or whoever or they has been the uh, – most consistent question asker, I think, of this season. So great job, Renton and Raven. It'd be awesome if it was like a Miko Renton and Burner account. Uh, I would say, okay, so would you would you, would you let them walk or trade? Um, I mean, I don't think you don't let them walk, but of course, would they walk? I think it's entirely possible. I think you see on McDavid's face the frustration when the team doesn't make the progress. And if we're projecting five years down the road and we haven't seen progress and we've lost the entire prime of McDavid, which is probably going to include even more personal hardware, same goes for Leon Dreisaitl, then sure, I, I can imagine them wanting to leave and, and try something new at that point of their careers. So to me, that's almost obvious. Like if, if they're if they're still stuck in the mud five years from now, then yeah, of course. The more interesting element of the question is the two-year conundrum for Leon Dreisaitl. And do you try to trade him? I think it's possible. Uh, if we're still not seeing progress two years from now, maybe there'll still be something left in the tank in terms of the Oilers' relationship with McDavid. And maybe you do have to try something drastic. That said, I think you still have to have a center coming back. Because if you look at the formula, the consistent formula of Stanley Cup champions year after year, they're always strong up the middle. And they're, they have more than one high-impact player up the middle. Just 
over and over. You have the Lightning, whether it's Point, Stamkos, sometimes playing center, Sorelli, whether it was the Blues, Ryan O'Reilly and Braden Shen. And then, of course, you have the Washington Capitals, because that's a backdrop. It goes on and on and on. You can trace it all the way back to two Penguins teams before the, the two years before that, Crosby, Malkin. I could keep going forever, right? So you need that nucleus up the middle. And it's hard to see it, the Oilers winning any trade where you surrender Leon Dreisaitl. So I, I think it's a far-fetched idea, but you never know if things aren't getting better. I think you have to entertain anything. What's interesting to me, though, the way the Oilers and GM Ken Holland have behaved this offseason so far, I think they understand this. There's an urgency. I've said before, I don't really agree with all the moves, but if you're looking short-term, I have been sure this year alone, next year, sure, Zach Hyman, then it's a great move. He's going to make the team absolutely better. And you're bringing in Warren Fogel, who's going to help in the bottom six as well. And, you know, if you look at the Duncan Keith acquisition, it's – I don't think it was, it's a trade I would have made, but it, to me it says this is a team that's going for broke and trying to bring in a piece that's going to put them over the top right now and bring veteran leadership right now. So all of those moves to me are saying – we need to make this work with McDavid and keep him happy because we can't waste any more chances with him in his prime. So I think there is a sense that maybe they're running out of years, whether they've had any internal discussions, we don't know, but I would say there's an urgency, especially if this team misses the playoffs this year, woo-hoo! I don't think they will in that division, but if that were to happen, then I don't know what would happen in Edmonton next summer. See, see every year there's always a joke. So I'm just like, Oh, Edmonton's going to blow it again. But at some point that's just got to stop. We, we, at some point, they're going to figure it out, right? I have to think when you have the greatest player of this generation and, and two of the greatest players of this generation, or at least two of the greatest offensive players, uh, that should be enough to get you a certain distance. I think this is a great opportunity for them this season in particular because the Pacific Division looks so weak. I think there are only two teams I can feel pretty confident about, obviously Vegas, and I do think Edmonton's the other team that has a leg up just because of the presence of these stars. So... This is the year you you need to take advantage. You need to beat up on that division. You've got to build up your record and then get a good home ice advantage type of matchup in round one, and then you're off and running. We'll see what happens. But I think this is a crucial year because of that, because the division's in a transition. You have the Ducks are still very early in the rebuild. You have the Sharks are kind of in denial. They don't realize how bad they are. We don't know who the Kraken are. Calgary, I think, is another denial team that's going the wrong direction. So this is a, a crucial year for the Oilers, I think. All right. Next question comes from James. Will John Tortorella ever coach again? Yeah, I think he will. Um, and it's weird because there is that perception that, oh, Torts, he's got a shelf life and he wears that as welcome and then he has these unceremonious exits. But I think that's sometimes more myth than truth, especially when it comes to his tenure in Columbus. Yes, there were some incidents involving Patrick Laine and you know, the, the misusing of him in terms of just the deployment, the ice time benching him in crucial moments, and so on and so on, absolutely. But overall, if you look at Torts' tenure in Columbus, it was a huge success. He got them to the playoffs four years in a row at one point. He led them to their, their most successful franchise or season in franchise history. It was unquestionably the most successful era in the history of that franchise while Tortorella was there. And if you look at what happened this year, well, you could say it was – I think the House of Cards kind of came tumbling down when you removed Pierre-Luc Dubois from the equation, a team that already needed more help at center, not less. And I think that it hurt the overall structure, uh, especially bringing in a guy like Liney, who's not, he doesn't really jive with the style that John Tortorella champions. So to me, that was more about the pieces he had to work with than him necessarily losing the room. I think for the most part, that team really stood by him and they thought he was a great coach and he was successful. So I think the next time we see Tortorella, it's going to be if a team feels like they need to pick their players up by the bootstraps and get a motivator in there, a team that's sort of uh, in a phase of desperation. In the meantime, 
they'll churn out some sound bites for us uh, on the airwaves, which will be fun, I'm sure. All right. Next question comes from Buffalo Sports Junkie. How many teams would be comfortable letting Jack Eichel replace the disc? Of course, with Jack Eichel, this is a story that just gets uglier by the day. Yeah, and this disc replacement surgery, it's very murky. There's very little, if any, precedent for it in hockey that I understand, uh, that there, that I know of. Um, but we can't underestimate the thirst for victory that certain franchises have. And I've been saying the Vegas Golden Knights, or that's my predicted team to get Eichel. I'm sticking by that. They have established that culture from the beginning with Bill Foley. They love to go big game fishing. Max Pacioretty and Mark Stone and Alex P. Trangelo, they just – they're never afraid to take those big swings. And I think they're probably willing to, it's weird, Vegas, it's kind of, you know, if we're talking puns, Vegas is the team that kind of fits the gambling pun. They are the team that I think is most comfortable gambling futures to try and win now. I think they understand they have a real opportunity. So if any team's gonna, gonna roll the dice, again, another Vegas pun, geez, I'm terrible. I think it's gonna be them. But the interesting thing now, is that it, I know it was Elliot Friedman at Sportsnet that reported it, I think, within the last week, that the Sabres price might be dropping. It's still high. It's still, I think, three or four pieces, and they all have to have first-round pedigree, whether it's first-round picks or players who were chosen in the first round and have a high pedigree and are, are performing well or developing well. It's going to cost a lot to get Eichel, but I do think is the price, it's going to keep coming down, uh, especially as the fears continue to rise about what's going to happen with his career. So if the price drops to a certain point where – the risk is suddenly not so bad. I think you, you are going to see a team pounce. And what's going to be interesting is just how much information will these suitors have access to? I think you have to be very deep in the process and close to a deal before you can really get involved. And whether there's an agreement where another team's doctor is allowed to examine him, it's the equivalent of passing a physical. I'm not sure how it would work. But my understanding at the moment is that most teams, are, or if not all other teams, don't have that access yet. But if, if we get down to the 11th hour and a deal is close, maybe you do have the ability to break that wall and conduct your own investigation into his health and maybe work with him. I think you'd want to be working with him and his agents to facilitate a trade as well. And maybe it happens. I still think it will happen, uh, but it's not – I can't say I, I ever predicted this. We'd be this deep into the summer and that Eichel – would still be waiting to have this procedure done. And at this point, it's like, how much time is it going to cost him in the season? Because it's, from what I understand, a fairly significant and risky surgery. You don't know how he's going to recover. And if it's pretty clear you're not going to get him for the start of the season, that might make teams more reticent to pay top dollar for him. I will also point out, we did a video, I guess it was part of your fantasy podcast months ago, and we talked about Jack Eichel's value and how it was falling. And at the time, he had just been hurt, and the whole point was like, okay, you know, he's he's going to be hurt, he's going to miss a little bit, and then it just got worse and worse. And just like his value must have just dropped significantly since then. I, 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 that was very early on in the season. It's ugly. Let's hope we get a resolution for everybody involved, because like I know for – if, you, if, if Eichel's really in pain, like like it sounds like, like he's just kind of sitting there, can only do limited practicing, that, that's got to be tough for the player physically, mentally, and everything. So we'll see where that goes. We got another question about coaching. Emma Markwell asks, is this the year we see the return of Mike Babcock, or is he blacklisted now? Yeah, I don't think it happens right now. We're not at that moment yet. Um, I think that there's still uh, enough of a backlash, justified backlash, in my opinion, about the – the uh, sort of mental abuse that he uh, inflicted on his players before. Um, so to me, I don't think he should be at the top of the list of people who deserve a chance, but I do think it, it will happen because there's that allure, that track record. He's a polarizing coach. Some people say he's an overrated coach who inherited teams full of Hall of Famers and he, you know, he, anyone could have pushed those Canadian 
teams to gold in 2010 and 2014, maybe. But I still think in hockey circles, he's an old school guy. And uh, I'm not saying, again, I'm just the messenger. I'm not saying that I'm the one who'd be hiring him, but I think there will be some old school thinkers that would consider hiring him. I could see him going back to a Canadian team. There's a couple I have my eye on. I think the market's... Uh, he can handle that media pressure because he's a very media-friendly coach. And I, I've never seen a coach that had the effect on the media like Babcock had in Toronto, seeing it firsthand all the time. He had a hold on the media, I think. And I can be guilty of that too. There are times when there's that extra second, that little pause in the air, and you don't jump in and ask that question because he's an intimidating presence. And I do think that makes him suited to Canadian markets because he can handle the heat. I think he enjoys it. And I think he knows he's got a, a gift of the gab for firing off that that. Uh, sound bite at the right time. So to me, if you look at a team like Vancouver and Winnipeg, those are two teams that I think have pretty high expectations for themselves this year. Winnipeg strengthening on D, Vancouver getting really aggressive to try and get back in the playoffs. If either of those teams start slowly and we see Travis Green or Paul Maurice get the ax, I could see Babcock being the type of person that gets a call to join up with one of those franchises. And again, I want to use that disclaimer. I'm not saying that he'd be my pick, but I'm saying that in hockey, in, in sort of the old school culture, there are names that just get recycled over and over for whatever reason. We saw it with Daryl Sutter in Calgary already. And I do think it's only a matter of time before it happens with Mike Babcock again. All righty. Next question comes from Jim Andereen. Kirill Kaprizov to Russia. Say it ain't so. I'll say go check out the hockeynews.com. Got a whole story breaking down that situation. And that is a, kind of a worst case scenario for the Minnesota Wild right now. Yeah. And maybe I'll have an egg on my face later but when i see all these stories oh he's got an eight-year deal in place in the khl to return to his old team like this is my face if you're watching and i just go nah 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 and i'll, I'll do a i'll do a, a, a an audio version if you're just listening i go nah 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 because it's posturing come on we know what's going on here he doesn't want to sign an eight-year deal with the minnesota wild because he wants to get to his ufa years earlier maybe it's because minnesota you know it's a great hockey market but if you're looking for a more glamorous lifestyle if you want to do a Russian comparison, Artemi Panarin, I think Kaprizov probably is looking for a deal that gets into his UFA years earlier. It could come as early as 2024. So I think they're trying to bridge that gap and find maybe a five or six year deal that's compromised that gets him to his UFA years a little bit earlier, but not so early that the Wild are you know already thinking of losing him. And yes, is it possible he bolts? But I, I genuinely don't believe it. I know. Uh, in talks leading up to him coming to the NHL with his then agent, Dan Milstein. I always was under the impression that he was really excited to come. He couldn't wait. And to me, if you know, you come and win the Calder Trophy and have a great rookie season, you're on a team that's on the upswing and then you don't want to play in the NHL anymore, I don't buy that at all. I think it's just a negotiation tactic that was probably leaked to sort of put the heat on the Minnesota Wild to get a deal done and maybe drop a year off the asking price for the offer in terms of the term. So, if he's not with the Minnesota Wild when the next season starts, I'll be very surprised. And I'm willing to, you know, make a friendly $5 bet with somebody over it. I 100% agree there. Also, in my article today, I also kind of said, like, because supposedly Kaprizov's camp hasn't been presented a contract since April. That's, come on, no one really believes that, right? Like, that's not good. So, next question. Ryan, what could the Flames get in a Sean Monahan trade? So, that's what he's doing instead of showing up for a podcast. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's tough, right? Because a few years ago, I think you could have gotten a lot more. I think Sean Monaghan was perceived as absolutely a number one center and one of the better goal scoring centers in the NHL. He's since become somewhat of a bionic man. His body is really broken down relative, like, relative to his age. He's had a lot of just injuries and surgeries and things like that. 
his body's taken a, a beating. So I think now he's better perceived as a number two center than a number one, but I still think he has value. And to me, it's tough because I don't know if, if the type of trade that fits Monaghan might not be what Calgary thinks it needs because the Flames, they want to be contenders. But if you're a contender, then you might be trading him to a team that's you know looking to build for later. But Sean Monaghan, he's got a 10-team no-trade list. So you can't say, oh, well, we, we're trying to win. We want Jack Eichel. We'll offer you, you know, Sean Monaghan, a first-round pick, and Jacob Pelletier. But then Sean Monaghan might say, sorry, Buffalo's on my, my list. I'm vetoing this trade. The type of trade that Monaghan would be likely be easier to it'd be easier to facilitate with Monaghan is a trade to a contender because that team might be less likely to be on his no trade list and you can say how about Vegas let's say Vegas says okay we'll give you Peyton Krebs in at first or Peyton Krebs in a second for Sean Monaghan that's a trade I could see being a more logical fit we know Vegas really badly needs to upgrade its center but can you sell the flames on that because that's just, that's a futures trade that's the type of trade I think they should be making I think Calgary is not a team that should be trying to win now I think they've missed their chance and should be rebuilding but I'm not under the impression that's what they believe after seeing what they gave Blake Coleman. That's a team that feels like they can contend. They signed Daryl Sutter to be their coach. They signed Blake Coleman to a pretty big uh, long-term deal. So Calgary believes it's a contender. So based on that, I don't know what kind of trade you're going to be able to find. It may have to be more of a hockey trade between two teams that are in similar situations. So I know that Vladimir Tarasenko has been a name thrown around with Calgary before. Is it a one-for-one, one? just Tarasenko for Monaghan? The money's close. It's less than, I think, I think it's less than a million dollars difference, or it's well, give or take. I know Monaghan's in the sixes and Tarasenko's seven and a half. So that would be an example of, I think, a relatively fair hockey trade. Uh, so there are ways out of it, but I do think that the no trade, the 10-team no trade list makes it a little more complicated. All right, we got two questions left before we do rapid fire, I guess. Uh, so this one comes, was the NHL green initiative just greenwashing or did it have anything worthwhile? I'm just going to assume AK Andre Kostitsin asked this question. <laughs> Alex Kalorn. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's hard to know for sure, right? Because a lot of the information that's out there is obviously going to be trying to make the initiative look good. And there's going to be a ton of positive facts out there. My understanding, and again, this is a pseudo educated opinion. I'm not an expert, but I, I don't know nothing on the subject. Um, my understanding is that of all the NHL's sort of philanthropic ventures, this is the, one of the more successful ones in terms of just changing the way that arenas use their energy, the way they handle their waste. And especially, it's especially true with the new arena builds. So grandfathering in the new changes and new sort of climate sensibilities. And of course, we're seeing with the Islanders in their new rink, but I think the best example is Climate Pledge Arena, not Climate Change Arena, as was said during the expansion draft, I think by Mr. Benton. Uh, but climate, climate Pledge Arena, I think is gonna be the greenest arena in the NHL. And for a couple of reasons, uh, their ice, the water they're using for their ice is gonna be the, the most sustainable, greenest ice in the NHL. And the build of the, of the rink is subterranean. So the arena is being built into the ground and because it's, it, it's built downward, you don't have to use nearly as many materials to build the outer facade of the arena in terms of the aesthetics. So you actually save a lot of building materials and resources and energy in even just the construction of the arena because they hired a, a renowned sustainability architect as well to design this arena. So based on that, I would say, you know, obviously everything you're going to read is sort of filtered through the PR lens and the league trying to make itself look good. But at least from what I know, this is a relatively successful venture so far. All right. Next question comes from Paul Sulak. As the NHL realigns back to original divisions, is there a chance in the near future we could see a change in playoff format? 
I don't think so. I'm sorry, Paul. I don't want to shoot this one down, but every time it's brought up to Mr. Bettman, he sort of just swats it down with the old tennis racket. And the last time it came up, I think, which was, which was after the bubble tournament, he was sort of uh, holding his ground on the idea that the format is something that the league likes and they like the parody. It's debatable whether, you know, we really have parody and there's a repeat champion right now. So I don't know if that screams parody to me, but uh, I, I don't think, I don't think you're going to see a major change unless the complaints get really loud among GMs and especially among owners who have the strongest influence, of course, on Gary Bettman. But I do think maybe there's an opportunity this year because, as I've said already during the show, that Pacific division is weak. I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility that the third place team in the Pacific division has a worse record than the sixth best team in the central. And that would be a scenario in which teams get pretty frustrated. Oh, you know, the LA Kings, oh, they had 87 points. They made the playoffs and, you know, whatever. Chicago had 95 points and missed in the central. And maybe then the competition committee, whatever it is, you start hearing influencers in the game cry foul. There's a possibility of that happening this year because of that Pacific format, the, the setup. You know three teams are guaranteed to get in. And I don't know if the third best team in the Pacific is better than the sixth or even seventh best team in the Central right now. Uh, and if you go cross conference, definitely, I think the third best team in the Pacific are probably are probably rank seventh or eighth in the Metro, right? So this could be a, an interesting year, uh, and it could inspire more complaints. And Stephen, before we get to the rapid fire, I know you told me there was one other question that came in just as we were getting set up. Do you do you remember that question? Yes, Hurley Yes, Hurley HHH asked, who's your underdog Stanley Cup pick? And I think last year we picked Columbus, and that was like the opposite of correct. Yes, it's funny because I, I think I said that on our podcast yesterday to Seth Jones. I was like, I had you guys as a sleeper, and uh, it didn't go well. Uh, this year, it depends on what you define as a sleeper, like a, a sleeper to go all the way. Um, I, I have a, I'm getting a pretty strong feeling about Florida. but Florida won the division last year, and they're – different alignments. So I don't know if that counts, if that's fair to call them a sleeper. If we're looking for a team that's deeper, um, I would say a, a team like the Dallas Stars is one to watch, in my opinion, because I think, you know, this team was two years removed from reaching the Stanley Cup final. They were extremely unlucky. They they obviously lost Ben Bishop. They lose Tyler Sagan for almost the whole season. They missed the first week of the year with COVID, and they're playing a condensed, condensed schedule. The entire league's playing a condensed schedule, but it was even tougher for Dallas. So I don't think what we saw from Dallas was the real team last year. I think they're going to be a lot stronger this year, and we're going to see what they really are. And even if Ben Bishop's not going to play, they're three deep in net now with Holpe, Jake Ottinger, and Tom Kudobin. They still have a strong decor. They've added Ryan Suter and Yanni Hockenpa. You have that dynamite top line now, Rupe Hintz and, and Jason Robinson and Joe Pavelski. And now you have a full season of Tyler Sagan to drive his own line as well. So I think Dallas, if we're talking sleeper, I feel like that's a better definition. I think it's too easy for me to say Florida because Florida looks pretty dominant. They already were this past season. They had a better record in the regular season than Tampa Bay. So maybe that doesn't count. And if we're talking real sleeper, I'll, I'll say the Dallas Stars. Nope, I agree with you there. Dallas Stars, easy one for sure. Of course, uh... It, it, we had a great story that Adam Proto put together for our website last week, talking about how the Dallas Stars, like this is a team that a couple of years ago, we were talking so much about how good their defense is and they've kind of even made it a little better this year. So that's pretty exciting. Of course, Merrill Heisken is farther on his career. So that's it for all the questions today. All righty. So now uh, I'm pretty excited about this. because It's always fun doing rapid fire, but we solicited rapid fire questions from the listeners today. So uh, I've answered a couple of them, but um this time they have the power. So, Stephen, I'm ready if you want to uh, throw the rapid-fire questions at me. 
All right. The first question is from Manny Benedivis. Sorry, I definitely know I pronounced this wrong. Who is your dream team to call an NHL game? Broadcaster, color commentary, and interviewer. They're all from outside the game. You can use anyone from another sport or from elsewhere in entertainment media. Okay. So um, for play-by-play, uh, I want Gus Johnson. Absolutely tremendous announcer for college basketball as football as well nfl for a little while most famous for march madness he's got unbelievable enthusiasm any game he's calling sounds like the most exciting thing and i i feel like i would just want to watch anything that he was calling i, I don't even know i wouldn't even care who's playing just his energy would make the game exciting so he's my guy um color commentary it's funny it's like Oh, maybe in an alternate universe, I would have said Snoop Dogg, but now I'm so sick of Snoop Dogg from playing in the NHL. Like, I, whenever if I'm playing and Snoop Dogg comes in, I'm like, oh, not again. I'm so tired of Snoop. So I'm going a different route. I'm going Jerry the King Lawler from the WWE because he's got obviously experience as a color commentator, but he, he's off the wall and he's again. I want entertainment. I'm I'm not old school. I'm new school. I want my hockey to be exciting and full of personality. So you got Gus Johnson calling the action. You got Jerry the King Lawler with his high voice reacting to what's happening. And I think that's a really high energy broadcast. And then to complement them with a different style for my interviewer. Uh, so my equivalent of, of uh, you know, Scott Oak or Kyle on the sidelines, I'm going to say Kristen Wake. The reason why I'm going to say Kristen Wake is if she plays a character, she's got tremendous awkward energy. And hockey players are already awkward enough, but if you have her sort of deadpanning or doing her little awkward bits, I think you can have hilariously painful and cringeworthy interviews, which I would personally enjoy. So then you have variety. You have the high energy during the broadcast. Yeah. You get the cringe humor when you see Kristen, you know, we're, we're thrown to the sidelines with Kristen Wake. So this is my strange NHL broadcast team. Yeah, mine, mine's going to be odd too. Uh, I'd say for the play-by-play, it'd be Alan Bestwick, who uh, is was on NBC and, and TNT and ESPN for, for motorsports like NASCAR, IndyCar and stuff like that. And he's a huge hockey fan. Actually, when there was a whole thing on Twitter, it was like, who should the ESPN like main broadcaster be? And I, I posted about Alan Bestwick and he actually reached out and said like how, how much he would love to do it. He's a huge hockey fan. He's had some incredible calls in motorsports, but he's been kind of out of the major mainstream for a little bit. <sighs> See, I don't know. Color commentary is such a thing where it's like that's always kind of res- like it almost seems like it's, it's always a perfect fit for a former hockey player. I don't know. I I think it would have to be someone from a different sport, but almost like 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 Snoop Dogg would kind of make sense. So I'm just gonna go with Eminem. He was not a different sport. <laughs> just just I, I would love to because like if if you see any early interviews of Eminem, like none of them made any sense. I would just love to see him try to analyze hockey, and I believe he's been seen with Detroit Red Wings hats. So I think he likes hockey. I'm not actually sure. And then I'd say for the interviewer, I want to go with Ryan Reynolds. I would love him to get up in his like Deadpool costume and just start interviewing players. Cause like, like if he plays the part, yeah, it would be so stupid. It'd be awesome. I like that. That's good. So next question from Ranton Raven again, best Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. Okay. So if I have an answer, that's almost unfair. If you want to say best, that it's probably JCVD because it's the best actual movie. It's the one where he plays himself. It's kind of an indie film. He made it late in his career, and it was like, oh, this is Jean-Claude showing his actual acting chops, and it's a movie where he plays himself, and then he's in a hostage situation. And I think that's – I haven't seen it since – I saw it once in the theater, and it was pretty good. So that's the best, but I don't I don't think that's fair. Like We're talking Van Damme here. You can't talk about him being a thespian. So 
In terms of best, the easy pick is Bloodsport. I think Bloodsport's just a tiny bit overrated. I'm going to say Sudden Death because the sheer lunacy of him getting to, to play goalie during Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final is one of the most absurd things I've ever seen in a movie. Fighting the mascot, Iceberg as well, is awesome. But just him playing goalie in the game is just absolutely ridiculous. And with, with Van Damme, you need some unintentional comedy in a Van Damme movie. Uh, so Sudden Death is my pick. Sudden Death, actually, we had a mention of that in uh, uh, one of uh, Avery Lewis McDougall's articles on the weekend. It was about kind of like the best like hockey cameos in movies and TV, and that was one of them. And I actually had never seen the movie, and then I watched it right after. I'm like, oh. kind of a stupid plot, but that's what made that great. I, I, for me, I'm not a movie person. I've said that before. <laughs> Literally the first and only movie that came to mind was Kung Fu Panda 2. <laughs> that, that that's how how much i don't watch movies it's an okay movie but that literally might be my answer because i don't have a better one i haven't seen kung fu panda 2 also shout out to to hard target because that was john Woo's introduction to america so that's pretty badass you had a great stunt with van damme standing on a motorcycle as well okay. all right i'm ready for the next one this this one's my favorite Open Ice, favorite NHL player from an uncommon country, not a mainstay at a top division world championship. Okay, so again, I didn't want to cheat because you could say like, oh, Olaf Kolzig because he's born in South Africa, yeah. but he's German, right? He's, he's part of Team Germany. So uh, to me, I actually think the answer is easy. It's Andrzej Kopitar, Slovenia. He is the all-time leader. He's the only player from one of the uncommon countries that is in the 1,000-point club. He has exactly 1,000 points. So to me, he's the GOAT among you know teams outside the top eight or top ten uh of the traditional uh world rankings ihf world rankings so it's got to be kopitar in my mind for me my, my favorite is yutaka fukufuji and this is a guy back when elementary school i try to collect every single yutaka fukufuji hockey card i could have and i put them all between my two favorite goalies at the time were miroslav kopiva and i think he played like one like rookie tournament game for minnesota but he had a hockey card and then yutaka fukufuji and he had a hockey card and Fukufuji had a long, great career with the Japanese national team and kind of fizzled out near the end of his career. But they've never had a goalie that good um, in Japanese hockey history. So that's, to me, my, one of my favorites. And I just love goalies in general, so that makes it easy. Next question from Brandon Garlerno, best movie soundtrack. And that's actually a challenging one. Yeah, well, if you're talking most prolific movie soundtrack, uh, The Bodyguard is probably the all-timer because that's a movie that I think the legacy of the soundtrack is bigger than the movie itself. I Will Always Love You and a bunch of hit Whitney Houston songs that came from it. Like That was a gargantuan soundtrack. That, I think that, that album was like the number one album of the year. It was a soundtrack. And you could say the same thing for Saturday Night Fever, a hugely popular, iconic. But if we're talking about just enjoyability, I still really like the Kill Bill soundtrack, Volume 1. I think just the... The, the sampling of just bizarre musical picks and reviving of songs that people hadn't heard, songs people thought were new that were actually already out there. And I think the RZA was the one that was in charge of the music on that movie. So I loved the song choices and the music choices in Kill Bill, especially Kill Bill Volume 1. Also, shout out to The Graduate, which is, a, I think, a lot of the most famous Simon and Garfunkel songs people forget came from that movie. So uh, that's another, I think, all-timer. But I think my official answer, I'm going to say Kill Bill Volume 1. I'd say in terms of, like, licensed music american pie is kind of like like although a lot of the songs from that and you get like some 41 and early green day i believe american pie had two at green day but like a lot of some of my favorite music that i've had forever came from the first two movies so i'd say that for like licensed music in terms of original music 
the entire like the original spider-man trilogy had some fantastic songs i think spider-man 3 kind of really just like the i was never someone who cared about well i shouldn't say i wasn't i was very young when the very first spider-man movie came out but like orchestra music didn't interest me but that really kind of let me kind of but when I recorded my own music to kind of more explore more instruments, explore more different type of themes and styles of music because of this, the way they really made it seem epic to watch a superhero movie, which at the time there wasn't a ton of superhero movies. There, there was not a lot of good ones. Marvel kind of didn't go on their craze before, uh, until after the original Spider-Man three movies. Even then that was where Sony movies technically. So I'd say those were my choices there. I am Iron Caniac asked, which players should make the best cameos in season two of Mighty Ducks? And did you see the first season? I didn't know. I'm interested. I just haven't gotten around to it. Um, to me, I'm almost tired of always picking PK Superman because he has such a good personality, so I'm not going to pick him this time. I'm going to say you just line up a bunch of Bud Lights and you send Nikita Kucherov out there. Maybe he can play a villain. He can be the coach of Team Russia. And, yeah, I think he, he, he could be dropping, you know, lots of swear words, but you bleep them out. I don't know. But I think he's established himself as quite a character after his uh, performance after the Stanley Cup final. So he's my guy. I think we had a question about the Mighty Ducks at some point before. We, we definitely talked about it because I remember Ken specifically not knowing anything about Mighty Ducks mm -hmm. series. But I, I, I'm a, I actually enjoyed the first season. Like my girlfriend's not a hockey fan, but she watched the entire season with me and she, she kind of found it interesting. But yeah, Subban's kind of an easy answer. I, if we're looking at, it didn't say anything about how to be current players, but I want to get Ilya Brzezgalov more more camera time. Why have we not heard much from him in the past couple of years? Like yeah. his Twitter account used to be just legendary. He'd just like tweet like a photo of like three ducks cross on the road with no caption. I'd be like, it's funny because it's Ilya Brzezgalov. Like that's the only reason it's funny. I would love to see him come back. Like you come almost need like a, a really kind of crazy out there goalie. And the problem is you just don't get like the crazy um, personalities these days. So. I don't know, maybe you get a Ryan Reeves out there, maybe you get Tom Wilson just to, to really kind of throw a mess up things up there. So I don't know. Uh, the last one, the most obscure question I think we've ever had asked. Where would you, this is from Ryan again, where would you rather pick an apple, Nova Scotia or Ontario? Well, Ryan, this is a pretty obscure question. So I did my homework, okay? I, I researched the apples that are most commonly native to both provinces, just for you, Ryan. And it appears that Ontario has most of the apples I prefer. So you get you get your Gala, your Golden Delicious, your Fuji, all available in Ontario. So if we're talking pure apples, I'm staying here in Ontario because Ontario has a lot of the ones I want. I don't have to travel all the way to Nova Scotia to get my apples. But if we're talking about just taking a trip somewhere and I can get most of the same apples in Nova Scotia, then hey, let's go to Nova Scotia for the trip. Beautiful. So that's that's me sort of beating the system. I guess my official answer is Nova Scotia because it means I get to take a trip to Nova Scotia. But if we're talking pure apples, I got what I need right here. I basically yeah, the most obscure question we've ever received. I actually had asked my grandma because she loves apples. What's her preference? She said Ontario. So <laughs> Nova Scotia is a beautiful place. I would love to go visit it again, but uh, I don't have to travel if I can have an apple from like the metro grocery store. So I'll stick with Ontario. Right. Well, on that bizarre note, and hey, you know what? I'm not even going to say bizarre. It's the silly season. This is the quietest time of year in the news cycle. That's why we're doing this. We've turned over the questions to our loyal listeners. And if there's ever a time of year to talk about apples, it's right now. So good on you, Ryan. Thank you, everybody, for sending in your questions. It was a lot of fun. And uh, I'm going to take a vacation. I'm going to be gone for the next podcast, but I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Hope you enjoyed listening to this one or watching it. And uh, 
Get some R&R, maybe enjoy the Blue Jays run if you're a baseball fan while the hockey news cycle is laying low, and we'll just sit tight and see if Jack Eichel gets traded. Honey, honey, won't you buy my disease? There's a thousand different problems that feed into me. I'm aggressive, yes, I guess I'm a bit of a bug, but